Welcome to the metaverse, baby. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Hey, it's Metaphysics Week here at the Magnus Podcast. So we're going to be bringing you some fantastic clips from the current course on metaphysics led by Dr. David Arias, AMI Senior Fellow, and uh, Pedagogical Marvel. This guy can teach like none other. The order of his mind is something to behold. And when we think of metaphysics, a lot might come to mind. Uh, perhaps crystal-worshipping pantheist hippie bookstores, uh, perhaps Mark Zuckerberg's attempt at the metaverse, and uh, none of that obviously really, really hits the mark. Very few people who discuss metaphysics nowadays have read something like Aristotle's Metaphysics. And so there's, uh, you know, to steal a terrible word, there's a lot of misconceptions that need to be cleared up about metaphysics. And to brutally paraphrase, uh, I think, G.K. Chesterton, this this uh, this pursuit of the metaphysical has to be done as a patriot. That is, it is our birthright to go beyond, to to delve into being itself, into the depths of being itself. And so, um, I'm not going to say much more about it in this intro. You're going to enjoy the course as we bring it to you here. It's really good stuff. And a reminder, you can uh, check out and join, if you want, the Magnus Fellowship, magnusinstitute.org, to become a fellow today. Receive free education, live and interactive. It's it's not only free, but it is freeing. And uh, 500 fellows strong now, really impressive group of humans, like-minded and doing good work under the light of great texts with world-class faculty. So you can become a fellow today at magnusinstitute.org. And finally, we are still in the midst of our great campaign. Thank you very much for your generosity, for making our work possible here. You can give us money, and you'll be glad you did, magnusinstitute.org. Here's the beginning of Dr. Arias's class on the metaphysics. Enjoy. Okay, so, so just to open and to kind of introduce this work, this great work called Aristotle's Metaphysics, I think it's helpful if, if we think in terms of what's called the traditional order of learning. In, in book six, of Aristotle's work of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle makes an interesting remark. He says that young men are able to be mathematicians, but they're not able to be wise or to be wise men. They're not able to study metaphysics. And in St. Thomas's commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics, St. Thomas Aquinas, he, he takes this as an opportunity to give the, the reason for why Aristotle has said that, and he takes that opportunity to reflect more broadly on the order of learning. And he says that given the way that the human mind stands to various subject matters of various sciences, he says there's a determinate order in which we have to approach these subject matters, and there's a determinate order in which we should go through the various sciences. And here in broad strokes is what St. Thomas lays out. He says, first, a man ought to study logic, not because logic is the easiest of the disciplines. In fact, logic, St. Thomas says, habet maximum difficultatem. Logic has the greatest difficulty. Okay. We don't, start we don't start in logic because logic is, is easy, but we study logic first because logic is most necessary. In logic, we learn the method of demonstrating, the method of, of coming to scientific knowledge. And we have to have that method in mind before we can go ahead and acquire scientific knowledge in any of the sciences. So we start with logic, St. Thomas says. And thereafter, we go to the mathematical sciences. And, and here, St. Thomas undoubtedly has in mind uh, something along the lines of Euclid's elements. Maybe he has explicitly in mind Euclid's elements, which he studied in the 13th century. 
So if you've ever cracked Euclid's Elements, you find in that great work, uh, the first principles of geometry, you find uh, the first and most fundamental demonstrations in geometry. Then there are also books that are dedicated to the study of numbers. You find first principles there. You find the most elementary demonstrations in, in the realm of the study of numbers and, and so on. There's much more in the elements than those things, but that kind of gives you a sense of what St. Thomas has in mind when he says we should study uh, mathematics. And then going forward, St. Thomas says, after you study mathematics, you should then in, engage in the study of natural science, which would include natural philosophy and its various parts. It would also include maybe some of the empirical sciences and, and so on. After we study the natural world and get, a, get acquainted with the properties of natural things, their causes, and so forth, then we can advance to a study, St. Thomas says, of moral science, or what we sometimes call moral philosophy. We can study the nature of human happiness, and, of, uh, the nature, and we can study the nature of the human act, which is conducive, and maybe in some sense constitutive, of human happiness insofar as it proceeds from virtue. After we do that, after we study moral science, then we're prepared to study, St. Thomas says, the last and the greatest of the philosophical sciences. So it's important for us to see that in this traditional order of learning, wherein we study the various parts of philosophy, metaphysics is properly studied last. It presupposes a heck of a lot. And St. Thomas says that, that a couple reasons why it comes last is because one, in metaphysics, we study things which transcend the imagination and the senses. And since we naturally learn through the senses and we, we really like to study things which we can imagine quite readily, well, metaphysics is is beyond that. And connected with that, St. Thomas also says that the study of metaphysics requires, as he puts it, a strong understanding, okay, an intellect that has been strengthened by the doing of the other sciences, of the other philosophical sciences. I think it's pretty easy to see that it's a fitting name if we consider, if we consider the, the etymology of this term. So this word metaphysics, it comes from some Greek terms. Brian can correct me if I, if I misspeak. But the Greek terms that this word comes from are metatafusika, metatafusika. And there are at least a couple different ways in which you could translate metatafusika. One way would be to say, after the physics after the physics. And that's a fitting translation. And you can see how that translation, it kind of ties in the science of metaphysics, the science of sustained metaphysics with the order of learning that we just discussed. We study the physics or physical things, you could say, in natural philosophy. So perhaps the name metatafusica, metaphysics, is signifying that this science that we call metaphysics is only to be studied after we've studied natural philosophy. Okay, that's, that's one meaning uh, to that name uh, etymologically. Huh? And another way to take the etymology of metatafusica is to say not after the physics, but beyond the physical things or beyond physical things. Huh? And if that's what we have in mind when we hear the term metaphysics, then the etymology of the name metaphysics, it helps us to, to see something about what we study in metaphysics. In metaphysics, we study things that are beyond the physical, okay? We study things that are, in some sense, immaterial, even spiritual, okay? So... Either way you go in terms of understanding the etymology of metatafusica metaphysics, you, you can glean something 
that's genuine, that's true about this science. Okay, so hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. Now, let me mention another thing regarding what we should expect to find within this work by Aristotle that we call the metaphysics. And I want to approach this by making, by making a couple analogies or proportions. I mentioned before Euclid's elements. I also kind of just mentioned very briefly in passing uh, Aristotle's physics, or at least alluded to Aristotle's physics. Aristotle's physics, that work, uh, the physics, is really maybe the primary work that he has in mind when he calls the metaphysics the work that studied after the physics, huh? So the physics is really a work in natural philosophy. Euclid's elements is a work in the science of mathematics. Now here's the proportion or a couple of proportions that we can have in mind. We can say something like this. As Euclid's elements stands to the science of mathematics and as Aristotle's physics stands to natural philosophy, so in a similar way, Aristotle's metaphysics stands to the science of metaphysics. Okay. Again, as Euclid's element stands to the science of math and as Aristotle's work called the physics stands to the science of natural philosophy. So in a similar way, Aristotle's work called the metaphysics, I think stands to the very science of metaphysics. What are we supposed to see from these proportions? Well, I think we can say this, that as I mentioned before, Euclid's elements, what it gives to us really is a, a, a set of first principles. And it also gives to us the most elementary theorems or demonstrations within mathematics. Okay, So if you were to crack book one of Euclid's elements, you would find that he gives you different kinds of first principles there, different he gives you definitions, he gives you what he calls postulates, he gives you what he calls common notions or axioms. Those are all different kinds of first principles. And then he gives you, starting in book one, some of the most elementary demonstrations, some of the most fundamental demonstrations in geometry. Does Euclid's elements contain the whole of the science of mathematics? Not by a long shot, right? But it's the work to study if you want to make a good beginning in the science of mathematics. And then something analogous can be said for Aristotle's physics and how it stands to the science of natural philosophy. In the work called The Physics, written by Aristotle, he gives us the first principles of natural philosophy. He gives us some of the most elementary and fundamental demonstrations of natural philosophy. Does his work called The Physics contain the whole of the science of natural philosophy? Again, not by a long shot. But if we want to make a good beginning in natural philosophy, we should study Aristotle's physics. I might add, together with St. Thomas's commentary on that great work. And then something similar must be said with respect to Aristotle's metaphysics. Okay, in this great work called the metaphysics, Aristotle gives us, he gives us many of the principles of the science of metaphysics, he gives us some of the most elementary demonstrations or the most fundamental demonstrations within that science, but he doesn't, he doesn't pretend to give us the whole science of metaphysics. But he enables us, through giving us this work, to make a good beginning in that science. When we read St. Thomas's On Being in Essence or De Ante Essentia, we'll see some teachings which belong to the science of metaphysics, which are not explicitly in Aristotle's metaphysics. So that in itself should be a sign that there's, there's more to this great science of metaphysics than we find in Aristotle's metaphysics. Huh? But we want to begin well in this great science. So we're going to start with Aristotle's metaphysics. And I would, I would also in, encourage everyone, if they have the time and the energy and the inclination to to delve into St. Thomas's commentary on the metaphysics. That's certainly the best one that I know of. Now, one, one, last, one last comment before we, we jump into the metaphysics itself. And this is, this is more of a story uh, than, than a comment proper. 
Plutarch, in his in his life of Alexander the Great, he recounts how Alexander, who had Aristotle as his personal tutor, grew upset when he heard that Aristotle had published some of his works. So Alexander the Great, he was out conquering as 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 much as he could, right, of the of the ancient world. And word reached him somehow that Aristotle had published some of his works. So Alexander wrote a letter to Aristotle, and Plutarch records the gist of the letter. And it said something like this. Aristotle, I've heard that you've published some of your works. I'm very upset about this. Especially, I'm upset by the fact that you've published the metaphysics. Because what now is going to separate us from the common man? Sincerely, Alexander. Okay, the letter said something like that. And Aristotle writes back, Plutarch reports, he writes back to Alexander. And what did Aristotle's letter say? Something along these lines. Don't worry, Alexander, for I have both written and not written. And Plutarch, commenting on that short and sweet letter of, of Aristotle, he says, what we're to understand Aristotle to mean is that his metaphysics was published kind of in the form of class notes, such that if a man isn't familiar with the oral doctrine or the oral Aristotelian philosophical tradition, he won't really understand the work well, or he'll have at least a very difficult time understanding the work well. So I throw that out there in case when you read through some of these selections of Aristotle's metaphysics, you find it somewhat difficult. Maybe you'll find the order hard to understand, or maybe it, it won't be clear why Aristotle's bringing up this topic and then that topic and so on. And that's, I think, where St. Thomas Aquinas comes in. Okay, St. Thomas Aquinas, even if he didn't have the actual oral Aristotelian tradition, well, I mean, that came all the way down from Aristotle, he was smart enough to be able to piece things together. And with the help of, of others in his day and the, the Latin philosophical tradition, Okay, with help with the help of people like Saint Albert the Great and others, he was able to figure out uh, precisely what Aristotle meant. Okay, and again, his commentary is is quite singular. All right, so that's all just kind of by way of introduction. Let's let's jump into the metaphysics and and see what we can do. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to try to cover things in in a summary way here. We can come back to any of these points. And, and go into them in, in way more detail, if you like, uh, during the discussion part of the class. So when we crack the metaphysics and we look at the first couple chapters of book one, in particular when we look at chapter one, we notice this, that Aristotle is really concerned with figuring out what wisdom is about. And you might ask yourself the question right off the bat, why does Aristotle begin the metaphysics with a consideration of what wisdom is about? Well, I think the answer is, is essentially this. Another name for the science of metaphysics is wisdom. And since we define each science by its subject matter or by what it's about, it's reasonable for Aristotle to begin his book on metaphysics or wisdom by showing us what exactly the knowledge is which we call wisdom is about or what it's concerned with. Okay. So that, I think that's why he opens this great work by saying, let's figure out what wisdom is about, what it's concerned with. If we can do that, then we will actually know what, metaphysics is about or concerned with because 
wisdom and metaphysics are really the same thing. Now, if, if the main question of this first chapter is what is the knowledge which we call wisdom about, we can ask what answer does Aristotle give to this question here in this chapter? I think you can summarize the answer by saying wisdom is about causes, okay? Or wisdom is a knowledge of causes. And Aristotle proves that this is true in chapter one. I think he syllogizes uh, to that conclusion that wisdom is a knowledge of causes. And maybe we could put the syllogism as follows. We could say wisdom is the best or most perfect kind of knowledge. Okay, Wisdom is the best or, more, or, or most perfect kind of knowledge. But then we add, but the best or most perfect kind of knowledge is a knowledge of causes. Therefore, wisdom is a knowledge of causes. Okay. And if, if you look at chapter one, I think what Aristotle spends most of his time doing is defending that second premise. He takes for granted pretty much that wisdom is the best or most perfect kind of knowledge. He takes for granted that we apply that name wisdom to whatever knowledge is best or most perfect. And he spends, he spends most of the chapter defending the second premise, namely that the best or most perfect kind of knowledge really is a knowledge of causes. And if you look through chapter one, and we don't have to go through this in detail, you'll see that really what he does is he goes through a whole list of different sorts of knowledge. He starts with sense knowledge. And by sense knowledge here, I just mean external sense knowledge, right? The kind of knowledge of the world that we get through the external senses. And then he brings in what you might call internal sense knowledge, okay? The kind of knowledge that we have thanks to our internal senses, like our imaginations, our memories, and so on. And then he brings in experiential knowledge. And he shows that superior to all of those kinds of knowledge that I just mentioned are things like art and science, both of which involve a knowledge of why things are the way they are. Both art and science involve a knowledge of causes. So he's able, by looking at the different kinds of knowledge, to show us that the best kind of knowledge, the most perfect kind of knowledge, really is a knowledge of causes. And that's the kind of knowledge uh, that wisdom has to be. Now, in chapter two, I think Aristotle adds to what he's shown in chapter one. In chapter two, Aristotle shows us that wisdom is not just a knowledge of any old causes, if you will, but wisdom is a knowledge of the first causes, of the highest causes, of the most fundamental causes. How does he show this? Well, again, I'm just going to kind of sketch it for now, and we can come back to it if you like to. In chapter two, Aristotle is something pretty amazing. He, he asks himself, what are the main marks of the wise man? What are the, ma the main marks or the main attributes of the wise man? And he says, there are six main marks of the wise man, and he's able to enumerate all of these. And these are marks that we all know at some level belong to the wise man. He tells us what they are. He says, the wise man knows all things in some way. Okay, that's the first mark. The wise man knows all things in some way, even the most difficult things. That's the second mark. He tells us that the wise man's knowledge is characterized by the greatest certitude. Okay, that's the third mark. So the wise man knows all things, even the most difficult things, with the greatest certitude. He says that the wise man is most able to teach. That's number four. Fifthly, he says, the wise man pursues his knowledge for its own sake. And then sixth, to use St. Thomas's Latin phrase, sapientis est ordinare. It belongs to the wise man to order. Okay, it belongs to the wise man to order. That's that's mark number six. 
And then what Aristotle shows is that based on these six marks, you can, you can reason out that the wise man's knowledge has to be a knowledge of the first causes and the first principles of all reality, or his knowledge has to involve that kind of knowledge of, of those causes. Let's think about this just for a little bit. We're not going to go through each of the six marks in, in detail, but just take the first one and let's see if, if we can kind of reason this out. So remember going into this, we're supposed to have in mind that that wisdom is the best or most perfect kind of knowledge, right? So we can ask ourselves, which kind of knowledge is, is better or more perfect? A knowledge of just some things or a knowledge of all things? Well, obviously the latter, right? So wisdom, it stands to reason, in as much as it's the best or most perfect kind of knowledge, it involves a knowledge of all things in some way, and that qualifier in some way is important. And Aristotle asks the question, and St. Thomas asks the question, well, how can a, a mere man know all things in some way? Well, we certainly can't know all things in their particularity, right? Go outside your backyard, and you see the grass there, right? If you have grass in your backyard. Well, can you know every blade of grass in its particularity? It take a long time. None of us want to go through that, right? Knowing every blade of grass in its particularity. And if you happen to to come to know every blade of grass in your backyard in its particularity, well, that now you have all of those blades of grass in your neighbor's yard, and in the and in your your next neighbor's yard, and so on. So we can't know all things in their particularity. That's an impossible task for our minds, right? How can we know all things then if we can't know them in their particularity? Well, we can know them in their principles, in their causes. We can know them in, in as much as they're pre-contained in some way in their principles and causes. Where are they first of all pre-contained? Where are, are, are all created things, first of all, pre-contained? In their first principles, in their first causes. So it's by knowing those kinds of principles and causes, the first principles and causes of all reality, of all things, that we can in some way know all things. We can know them in principle, not in particular. And so you can see how by reasoning from just the first attribute of the wise man, we can, we can come to see that the wise man must know the first principles and causes of all things. And St. Thomas, in his commentary, he goes, he goes into this kind of reasoning uh, in a more elaborate way than, than I'm doing right now, but he shows you that given all six of the marks of the wise man, you can reason out that the wise man must know the first principles and causes of things. Now, in, in, addition, in addition to just listing out the six attributes of the wise man and showing us that the wise man must know the first principles and causes of things, Aristotle has some amazing things to say about, about wisdom, okay? about the kind of knowledge that wisdom is, okay? which add to what we already know. In the second part of chapter two, Aristotle manifests that wisdom is, as he puts it, a kind of looking knowledge. It's not a practical knowledge. Okay, Wisdom is a, a looking knowledge, or you might uh, call it a speculative knowledge. Not in the sense that there's guesswork involved, but in, in the sense that it's a knowledge that enables you to, to look at, at the object and learn from it, but not to make the object of the knowledge. He also says that wisdom is most liberal, okay, as opposed to being servile. And he says it's divine. It's a divine knowledge. And that text in particular where he brings that up is, is very striking. It's so striking I want to I want to read the text itself rather than try to, to, to summarize it 
for you guys. This, by the way, is at line 982B, about 30. Actually, I'll start right, right above that. Okay, 982B, 30. He says, The possession of it, of wisdom, might be justly regarded as beyond human power, for in many ways human nature is in bondage, so that according to Simonides, God alone can have this privilege, and it is unfitting that man should not be content to seek the knowledge that is suited to him. So here he's basically saying, maybe this knowledge that we're calling wisdom, that we're calling metaphysics, is, is above our ability to have. Maybe it's the property of the gods to have this kind of knowledge. He continues, If then there is something in what the poets say, and jealousy is natural to the divine power, it would probably occur in this case above all, and all who excelled in this knowledge would be unfortunate. But the divine power cannot be jealous. Nay, according to the proverb, bards tell many a lie. Nor should any other science be thought more honorable than one of this sort. So here Aristotle is saying, actually, the gods, in fact, are not jealous of this knowledge, and they're willing to share it with us human persons. He goes on, for the most divine science is also most honorable. So here he's pointing out that this divine science is the most honorable science. He says, and this science alone must be in two ways most divine. So here are the two ways in which it's divine. He says, the science which it would be most meet for God to have is a divine science. And so is any science that deals with divine objects. And this science alone has both these qualities. For God is thought to be among the causes of all things and to be a first principle. And such a science either God alone can have or God above all others. All the sciences indeed are more necessary than this one, but none is better. Okay, so there, I think Aristotle is saying something pretty amazing for us to to think about and consider about metaphysics. He's saying that this science that we call metaphysics is in some measure about God. And so in that sense, it's divine. Okay, it's divine insofar as in this science, we consider God as the first principle and causes of all things. But he goes beyond that and he says, this science is also divine because it's like God's knowledge. So if a person, if a human person cultivates the science of metaphysics within his soul, well, then his knowledge is like God's, okay? It's like God's knowledge. Now, why is this amazing? This is amazing because when, when we think about this science that we're talking about, we're considering a science that can be acquired by our natural powers, okay, by the natural light of human reason, and apart from God's grace, okay, this is a naturally acquirable science, and we can come to have a scientific knowledge just on the level of human nature, or what's available to the natural light of human reason, such that our intellects, through having this science, get conformed to God's knowledge in a very profound way, okay? Obviously, God's knowledge is infinitely more, more perfect than ours, but still, we can become godlike in acquiring this science, and that's just an amazing thing to think about, right? Obviously, our, our intellects can come to have a, kind of a divine characteristic, so to speak, about them, or divine likeness about them through having gifts of grace in them, like the theological virtue of faith, like some of the gifts of the Holy of the Holy Spirit that reside in the intellect, uh, and so on. Okay, but this is something metaphysics is something that's available to us uh, just on the level of human nature and what it can acquire uh, by its own natural powers. Okay. 
So let's let's move on. What does Aristotle do in the rest of, of book one, by the way? Well, I didn't ask you guys even to, to take a look at it, but it's it's well worth the read if you have the time. In the rest of book one, what Aristotle does basically is, is he goes through kind of a history or a historical survey of what his predecessors had to say on the causes. And he shows you how, how over time, starting with the pre-Socratics and going through Plato, the four causes, the four different kinds of causes, and we'll be talking about these uh, in the near future, the material cause, the formal cause, the agent or efficient cause, and the final cause, he talks about how those were discovered over time, okay, some before others, some after others. And then here's how Aristotle concludes book one. This is in chapter 10 of book one. He says, it is evident then, even from what we have said before, that all men that all men seem to seek the causes named in the physics. And those are the, he's talking about his work, the physics, huh? And those are the four kinds of causes I just mentioned. And then he says, and that we cannot name any beyond these, but they seek these vaguely. And though in a sense, they have all been described before, in a sense, they have not been described at all. For the earliest philosophy is on all subjects, like one who lisps, since it is young and in its beginnings, close quote. Okay, so there Aristotle is telling us that, that men in the past have not discovered any causes beyond the four that are described in the physics, a material cause, formal cause, agent or efficient cause, and final cause. They haven't distinctly differentiated them, these causes according to their kinds, so that's something that Aristotle himself has to do, uh, and and does very well. And by the way, in one of our one of our future classes, when we look at, at some stuff in Book Five, the first two chapters in Book Five of the Metaphysics, we'll we'll spend some time going through the different kinds of causes with with some sub distinctions, which I hope you'll find helpful uh, and illuminating and that sort of thing. Okay, so we'll definitely come back to the four causes uh, in in a lot of detail, but Aristotle, he very much has those on his mind even now. Why? Because if we're to seek the first principles and causes of all things as students of metaphysics, well, we have to know the kinds of causes that we're looking for. And Aristotle says, if you look at what men have discovered up to this point, they, they've only discovered four kinds of causes. Huh? Now, if we look at book two, we find that Aristotle, he does a number of things, and we're going to try to try to summarize uh, these things uh, for you guys. Let me just treat a few things that he touches on in chapter one, and then we'll we'll look at a little uh, in a little more detail at some things that he has to say in chapter two, and he has the four causes in his mind in, in his in his mind uh, in both of these chapters. Okay. So before he gets to the four causes with any sort of distinction in chapter two, in chapter one, one thing that Aristotle does is he lays out two different kinds of difficulties which we encounter in our endeavor to know things. He tells us very insightfully that sometimes when we have trouble knowing things or understanding things, he says, sometimes the difficulty is on the part of what we're attempting to know. Other times, the difficulty is on our part, okay? It's on the side of the knower, or on the side of the one attempting to know. And let's just give some examples of, of, these, different, of these different difficulties. Well, a lot of the things that you study in natural philosophy are difficult to know. Okay, things like the nature of matter, the nature of motion, the nature of time, the nature of place. Okay, these are things that are pretty difficult to know. It's, it's very easy to make a mistake when you attempt to know the natures of these things. Now, is the source of difficulty more on the part of 
the object that we're trying to know or more on the part of the knower? Well, in the case of these things that I just mentioned, matter, motion, time, place, I think it's true to say that the difficulty is more on the part of the object itself that we're trying to know. Just take one of those examples. I don't know how many of you guys have uh, made it through the physics, so I'm not going to I'm not going to assume a detailed knowledge of of that work. But just just think of of the reality that we call motion. Okay, motion is something real. It's something that's all pervasive in the natural world. But motion is a very fleeting reality, right? It's here now, and then it's gone, right? A body is in motion, and then that body is in rest. And because motion is such a fleeting reality, because there's so little to it, right? Um, motion doesn't have, it doesn't have as much of a nature, so to speak, as does a man or a horse or an oak tree or some other natural substance. Because there's hardly anything to motion, it doesn't have that much intelligibility in itself. And so the very object that we're trying to understand, if we're trying to understand what motion is, it's hard to grasp. There's hardly anything for the intellect to latch onto there. Huh? So that would be just, just one of those examples. Now, other times, as I mentioned, the cause of difficulty in knowing is on our part. Okay. What does this mean? Well, it basically means that, that there are many objects out there which are not proportioned to our knowing powers, okay? It's not that there's some lack of intelligibility on the part of the object, but our knowing power is not well proportioned to grasp that object. Aristotle, he makes a very insightful uh, proportion or analogy here in chapter two, when, or sorry, here in chapter one of book two, when he's, when he's helping us to see this point, he says, as the eye of the bat, or some translations will say the eye of the night bird, either one works, as the eye of the bat stands to the sun, so do our intellects compare to things which are most knowable by nature. Again, as, as the eye of the bat or the eye of something like the owl stands to the sun, so do our intellects compare to the things which are most knowable by nature. So first of all, let's just think of, a, of, of the first part of that analogy, right? Well, the bat, the owl can't look directly at the sun. We even have a hard time looking directly at the sun for very long. Is that because there's a kind of lack of of visibility in the sun? No, it's because there's a kind of super eminence to the visibility of the sun, right? The sun is so visible that the eye of the bat, the eye of the owl, even the human eye is not well proportioned to grasping something that's that visible, right? Our eyes are not uh, proportioned to grasping something that's that luminous, you might say. Well, in an analogous way, we can say this, it's hard for the human intellect to come to know God, okay? So by the natural light of human reason, we can know that God exists with demonstrative certitude. We can know many things about his nature, but it's, it's hard to know those things, especially hard to know things about God's nature. Now, is that because there's some lack of intelligibility on God's part? Absolutely not, right? God is perfectly intelligible. He's the most intelligible thing, thing that exists, that can exist, right? He's most knowable by nature. But our intellects, poor as they are, are not well proportioned to knowing an object that's infinitely intelligible. Okay, so in this case, uh, in the case of, of knowing God, well, the difficulty in knowing him is on the part of the knower, not on the part of the thing known. Hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. Now, after making that distinction, and Aristotle makes some other important points here, he, he goes on in chapter two to do something quite marvelous. He, he lays out or really reminds us of the four different kinds of causes that I mentioned before, the material cause, the formal cause, the agent or efficient cause, 
and the final cause. And what he does is he proves to us, he actually demonstrates to us that there is at least one first cause in each of those in each of those genera of causes. So if if you look at the order of material causality, you can come to know with certitude that there's at least one first material cause. Maybe there are multiple first material causes, but there's at least one first one. You can also come to see that there's one, at least one first formal cause. You can come to see that there's a first in the genus of agent or efficient causality. You can also come to see that there's a first final cause, at least one. So he, he shows us demonstratively again, that there's a first in each of the four genera of causes. You might ask, well, why is he doing this? Or, or how does this help us? Well, I think he's doing this in part to give us hope that our task as students of metaphysics can be accomplished. What's our task? To know the first principles and causes of all things, right? He shows us that, look, there are first principles and causes. We can know their existence. He's not concerned here in chapter two with laying out the natures of these things, but he wants to show us that there are first causes in each of the genera of causes, and they're knowable by us, huh? How does he show this? Well, in brief, what he does, he, he gives a kind of general argument, I think, first. And, and what he basically does is he shows us that if we look in any of those four genera of causes, we find causes that have the status of what we might call middle causes, middle causes. Let's, let's think of an example in the genus of material causality. So we could say something like this. We can say, well, we have water. And we know that water is a material cause of things that are in some sense higher than it, right? Water is something that we need materially in order to stay alive, okay? Same with plants, same with other animals. Okay, we, we depend upon parts of our body being moist, having characteristics of water, and so on. So water is in some sense a material cause of living things that we find on earth, right? But water is itself dependent on material causes, right? We say that water depends on two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, okay? So water has the status of a middle cause in the genus of material causality. It'd be kind of like if you were to think of, of something like a brick, right? In the order of building, we can say, well, okay, the brick is a constituent of the brick wall. So it's a material cause of the brick wall. But the brick itself clearly depends upon material causes, okay? Whatever, whatever was brought together, some sort of clay or something like that, that was then fired, that is a kind of material cause that the brick itself depends on, okay? And there might be further material causes that you could identify, but all we need is one. We just need to identify one material cause that has the status of a middle cause, okay? Now, what kind of mileage can we get out of this? Well, Aristotle seems to show us the following. He says, look, if you have a middle cause, okay, a cause that depends on some cause prior to it, well, then you can know for sure that there has to be some first cause in that genus or in that line, okay, some cause that has no cause prior to it. And that's what we call a first cause in that genus. Another way to put this, a way to put it more formally would be along these lines. You could say, if there is a middle cause, with no first cause, well, then you have a middle with nothing before it. But that's a contradiction. It's a contradiction to posit a middle 
with nothing before it. Therefore, if you have a middle cause, you have to have a first cause in that genus. And to help us see that there's a contradiction posited in saying that there's a middle with nothing before it, we can think about something that Aristotle says in his work, The Poetics. He tells us in The Poetics when he's talking about stories that every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Not a big surprise, right? But then Aristotle goes on to define what the beginning of a story is, what the middle of a story is, and what the end of the story is. He says that the beginning of a story is that part of the story which has a part of the story after it, but no part of the story before it. He says the end of the story is that part of the story that has a part before it, but no part after it. And then he says the middle of the story is that part of the story that has a part both before it and after it. So with that notion of middle in mind, you can see how it involves a contradiction to posit a middle with nothing before it, whether that be in terms of the parts of the story or whether that be in terms of causes. Okay. Now, in presenting that argument that way, Aristotle's argument, his general argument for there being a first in each of the generative causes, I, I skipped over a lot of distinctions which are sometimes helpful to bring out in this kind of uh, context. Okay, distinctions like different meanings of prior or before, difference between temporal priority and causal priority, uh, and so on. So I've skipped over a bunch of things, and if you have questions about those, we can we can definitely revisit those uh, in the in the discussion part of of the class tonight. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.